Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. District of Conservation is sponsored by Real Camo Girl, a lifestyle brand for women who love the great outdoors, spanning from hunting, fishing, foraging, archery, shooting sports, and the like. We are proud to have them as a sponsor, and you can learn more about them at www.realcamelgirl.com and follow them all across social media to learn more and get an... Welcome to another installment of District of Conservation. I know there was some technical difficulties on one audio and for my dad segment when I interviewed him last week. So I apologize for that. I'm actually using that mic now and I think I've finally configured it, but I hope you enjoyed that despite the technical difficulties we had on the podcast. And my goal is to bring him on again in the near future. And maybe we can explore the topics we had discussed on the last episode more in detail then. But today I'm going to break down a lot of crazy things that are happening in Congress, nearby states, and elsewhere. So bear with me while we break down all those for you today. The first topic of discussion is going to be H.R. 8 and H.R. 1112, which are the two gun control bills that are currently being deliberated in Congress and that are going to be making waves and likely passing the respective chamber. If you guys remember, last November, the Democrats took over the House of Representatives. Therefore, they wanted to put out the most strident, unreasonable, impractical bills, which do little to ameliorate crime, but instead criminalize the law-abiding gun owners. I know that's a cliche argument you hear, but I'm going to use this first segment to break down essentially why that is the case. They're not joking when they say they want to take away your guns. And these two bills that I'm going to elaborate more on highlight that very such notion. It's not a scare tactic. It's not the NRA trying to put fear in people's minds. This is the truth. You read this, you see this, and this is what is going to materialize. And there are some Republicans who are supporting this with one bill, especially we see a few Republican members of Congress in the House side supporting this. So it's a little concerning to see that hopefully it won't make any either of these bills won't make any traction beyond the House of Representatives. It'll be blocked in the Senate, but we don't never know with certain things that are presented because a lot of Republicans equally fall for gun control measures, too, despite claiming to have Second Amendment credentials. So here are the two bills that we're going to break down. H.R. 8 essentially would bar people. It's called the Bipartisan Background Checks Act of 2019. It would essentially make it illegal for or unlawful for any person who is not a licensed importer, licensed manufacturer, or licensed dealer to transfer a firearm to any other person who is not so licensed unless a licensed importer, licensed manufacturer, or licensed dealer has first taken possession of the firearm for the purpose of complying with subsection S. And this bill goes on. I'm, I'm reading this from the congressional website on this bill, the text. And it says that their goal is to ensure that 
The current background check system is utilized in the United States to ensure individuals prohibited from gun possession are not able to obtain firearms. So even without reading this, you can surmise that this is going to be a duplicitous bill on top of the current NIC system and the background check system that we have in place. It seems very much like it. Just having read through this uh, text, you can read f- through it because I want I have to cram through a lot of information. But I'm going to use a story, an actually really good article, to contextualize what the problem with this bill, H.R. 8, is. And Shana writes the following. She says in the Miami Herald, which is an excellent column, check it out if you haven't already, that a few months ago, she took a close friend up on an offer and we headed out to the local gun range where I taught her how to shoot. I remember the giant smile on her face when she realized she hit her intended target. I was proud of her for stepping out of her comfort zone to learn a new important skill. If HR 8 had been enacted and I had lent my friend that firearm to go back to the range and continue continue her education, I would have committed a crime punishable by up to $1,000 in fines or the equivalent of a year in prison. That's because the bill makes it illegal for someone to hand over possession of their firearm to most people, even if they know the person well. And it would therefore, she says, make it so a person would not have to know they were committing a crime in order to be prosecuted. So this has a lot of duplicitous, confusing measures entailed in it. And I think Shana's article contextualized what the consequences would be should this go into law. And it's a problem. It doesn't address the problem of gun violence, the true perpetrators of gun violence. It only goes after the people who don't commit the crimes to make it harder for them to purchase firearms for self-defense or preventative measures. This is the, a common thread among a lot of these House Democrats and even Senate Democrats, but we're going to focus on the House today. And again, it's a very dangerous bill. Much like H.R. 8, there's another one you all should be concerned about, is the Enhanced Background Checks Act of 2019, which is H.R. 1112. And it would eliminate the three-day safety valve provision uh, that most of us subject ourselves to whenever we purchase a firearm. So you basically have until three days when you submit yourself to a background check, whether or not currently, according to current law, if you fail or pass the background check. When I purchased my firearm, or actually when my dad gifted me a firearm about three years ago for my 25th birthday, I still had to submit myself to a background check at the gun store to ensure I was not a criminal, that I had no questionable past, no violent crime offenses, no domestic charges, no drug possession charges, nothing. I'm law-abiding. I've never committed anything. My record is pretty squeaky clean. And I got my background check processed through the NIC system within 45 minutes. It can take as short as time as 20 minutes to up to three days under the current system. If HR 1112 were to be put into effect, that would remove that three-day safety valve provision for up to 20 days and other clouded provisions attached to it. You won't know what reason you were denied. It will make the system more complicated. The fixed NIC system, or excuse me, the NIC system already currently in place is pretty foolproof. It's not perfect, but it does a pretty good job of detecting most of the time when someone who is prohibited from possessing firearms is prohibited. It's not a foolproof system. We've seen instances, especially with the Sutherland shooting in Texas about two years ago, where the Air Force failed to relate to the FBI that the perpetrator and criminal who killed all those innocent people in that church had problems. He had domestic abuse charges. He had lots of problems that excluded him from ever purchasing a farm and getting it. 
And for, for that to not have taken place, that was at the fault of the federal government. And so with this so-called Enhanced Background Check Act, it would make the system already more complicated. It's really interesting that this would create further confusion for the NICS system. It wouldn't do anything again to ameliorate crime. And it would make it so, let's say, someone who was in urgent need of purchasing a handgun, let's say a domestic violence survivor or someone who is currently under threat by an ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, whatever, uh, we saw this. When it came to a woman in New Jersey, her name was Carol Brown. This was for a concealed handgun permit, but I think the same could be applied to those who are in urgent need of firearms or who need to have this three-day safety valve provision in place, especially if they urgently need a firearm to protect themselves. Not people who go and commit crimes, but people who need a firearm because they know someone could potentially attack them, especially if they're a rape survivor, domestic violence survivor, etc. And with the case of Carol Brown... In June 2015, she was waiting for her permit to get a concealed handgun permit to carry because her ex-boyfriend was out to get her. He expressly made it known he wanted to inflict harm on her. And prior to her death, she went two days before to her local police station, county police, I believe, or her locality, I should say, waited to check on the status of her approval. Nothing then. And two days later, she was murdered. And this could very well happen if the NIC system were all, were to be altered, if the three-day safety valve period were to be altered further. It's a pretty good system in place. Again, it's not perfect, but if it were improved and enhanced, we wouldn't need to put any more background checks in place. Existing law is perfectly fine. You need basic assurances to ensure that people go through a system, there's no national data registry created, and things of that sort. But this is going to create a lot of victims if this safety valve provision were to go people are going to need firearms urgently for self-defense purposes and even if they just want to own a gun for protective measures even if they are not under threat why does someone have to be denied this because of some criminal it's going to complicate the system and do nothing again to ameliorate crime it's just to take away rights and privileges to would-be gun owners and people who practice the law and are law-abiding so these are both really ridiculous provisions. I'll include the text for both of them. Please urge your member of Congress, whether Democrat or Republican, to please vote this down. This is going to have a lot of ramifications. And again, it, it doesn't do anything to stop crime. It's just going to make criminals of the law abiding. And these have consequences. This is the first step to confiscation. I hate to say it, but that's what it is, plain and simple. So be weary of those two provisions and two bills and urge your member of Congress to vote them down. They're very bad. More positively, I wanted to discuss some good pieces of legislation that have been presented. So with respect to Maryland Sunday hunting and according to Sportsman's Alliance, uh, this bill was presented by Maryland Senator Jack Bailey from St. Mary's County, who introduced two bills that would expand Sunday hunting for deer hunters and migratory bird hunters or waterfowlers or goose hunters. So there are two bills to consider that should pass or should be passing uh, given Maryland's state or Maryland's general assembly's makeup, the likelihood could be very slim, maybe they'll find a compromise to do it by a certain hour. There are a lot of hunters, even those who belong to a certain party that don't necessarily support hunting, that potentially would support this cuz it's such it's so embedded into the culture in Maryland. I'm not sure what the likelihood of either of these two bill are for passing but senate bill 293 would allow 
hunting of migratory birds on Sundays, while Senate Bill 390 would allow Sunday hunting deer on public lands as designated by the Maryland Department of Natural Resources. And both bills, as of this recording, I believe I can correct myself, currently sit in the Senate Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee. And although they have Democrat supermajorities, there could be some way for this to pass. Otherwise, the bill could be dead on arrival. But Sportsman's Alliance has more on why these bills need to pass, and I encourage you to read it, and I think that's a glimmer of hope. The Land and Water Conservation Fund is also going to be permanently authorized if all goes to plan. And the Senate voted 92 to 8 to permanently reauthorize this. And I wrote about it at the resurgent to further contextualize the importance of this. And there are some questions. I don't believe it's a perfect piece, a perfect plan. There are some questions about state management policies and things that turn off some Republicans. And I understand their concerns about that. But generally speaking, there's really not much to dislike about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. It is not funded by the taxpayers. It is about $900 million a year that is appropriated from oil and gas royalties collected uh, from energy companies who pay into federal monies to essentially see those monies go back to the regeneration of forests, wildlife refuges, parks, open spaces, trails, and habitat wildlife. And this program has been in place since 1964. It offers innumerable recreational opportunities, uh, promotes clean water, scenic vistas, critical archaeological historical sites, and leaving many wilderness areas here in the United States untouched. And while permanent authorization, reauthorization is on the horizon, that fund could be put in further jeopardy, as I argued at the resurgent, by the Green New Deal. And like I said, this is one of the most successful environmental plans this country has seen. It doesn't really cost, cause a lot of controversy. But if this Green New Deal were to go into effect you would see the elimination of this program straight up because 88% of traditional energy sources produced would be wiped out by the Green New Deal with its intention to go 100% renewable by 2030. And that primary funding source through oil and gas royalties paid by energy companies to the federal government would disappear. And that's pretty concerning. That shouldn't be happening, especially with it being permanently reauthorized soon on the horizon I think this would be a disaster for that program. It, it almost became obsolete in the fall, and now there's an interest to put it back in place, interestingly enough, with a lot of bipartisan support. But again, this plan, as I argued at the resurgent, this Green New Deal, would further jeopardize that plan because that's what they rely upon. There's nothing else that could substitute it as of right now in terms of royalties. I think it's a symbiotic relationship where you see those royalties being pumped back to supporting conservation efforts like this. And this plan would be a disaster, not only for the economy, but for the environment as well. It does nothing to bolster the environment and make it cleaner. And it's a preservationist policy if it were to go into effect. But if you guys didn't know, this would hit the, the land and water conservation fund where it shouldn't hit it and ensure that all the things that we enjoy, in addition to the Fish and Wildlife Service and Department of Interior managing things, seeing this fund be wiped out and becoming obsolete. That would be a travesty to see that. It's already been a pain to permanently reauthorize it. It'd be a travesty to see it completely go out the window. So hopefully this plan will 
never see the light of day. It will die in the Senate and die in any other congressional efforts because it would be a horrible, horrible indictment of Congress. Congress already has low approval. You don't need to have this crazy plan, which does nothing to help the environment go into effect. That was episode 25 of District of Conservation. I rammed through a lot of important details relating to gun control bills being mulled in the House of Representatives to the importance of Sunday hunting bills passing in Maryland and with the importance I made or with the emphasis I made of the importance of permanently reauthorizing the Land and Water Conservation Fund and the threat that can come to its existence if the Green New Deal were to pass. So those are always interesting to discuss whenever we can discuss those kinds of topics. But please be alert, well-informed, read exactly the bills presented before members of Congress or even your state legislature because a lot of it is pretty bad. And in the in- in when there are instances of good bills, you should praise them and support them in the affirmative when you can. But it's important to highlight that, and that's what we do here at District of Conservation. And some people may not like the commentary associated with it, but it's my job to provide a counter view as to what is being considered in Congress and also in various different states. If you enjoy the content, please be sure to download us on iTunes, Google Play, and other supporting platform services. iTunes is our hub, and the more downloads we have there, the better reach we can have, and the more we can climb the charts in the outdoor category for Apple Podcasts. So any download is super appreciated. You guys can follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Never miss a beat. I'm going to do my best to get more guests on the program as the weeks go on and keep you all informed about what's happening in and around the nation's capital and also bringing on some cool storytellers uh, to, to not always talk about politics or talk about political situations that happen because I like to have a good balance about uh, people who are telling their story and then also those good and bad bills that should be on your radar as well. So thank you guys for listening, for downloading and offering your support for the podcast. And I hope you enjoy it. Send me your suggestions and we will continue to proceed with the podcast each Tuesday. Thank you guys. Have a good week.